0: Welcome to the Christchurch Historical Association annual lecture series, featuring University of Canterbury academics, senior research students, and visiting scholars sharing their passion for history. Tena koutou katoa, no mai mai te tere Welcome everyone to this the May meeting of the Canterbury Historical Association. My name is Heather Wolfram, and I am the current president of the CHA. Um, tonight, our speaker is Jeff Rice. Um, and for those of you in the room and those of you on Skype, uh, not Skype, I mean Zoom, uh, he probably needs a little to no introduction, uh, but I think we would do well to remind ourselves just what a significant contribution Jeff has made to history here at the University of Canterbury, to the Canterbury Historical Association, to the Canterbury um, History Foundation, and of course the understanding of Christchurch and Canterbury history more broadly. As many of you will be aware, Jeff taught history here at UC between 1973 and 2012 when he retired. Um, He also served as the head of the School of History uh, between 2006 and 2011. He was, of course, the secretary of this association from 1982 to 2007. And he remains a stalwart, committed member of the committee, for which we thank him. Um, now if I was to stand here and to list his publications, we'd be here for a very long time, of course. So I just want to mention very briefly three um, reasonably recent publications, book publications, which I think will give you a little bit of a sense of the range of his more recent historical interests. So. One of my personal favourites is the two-volume Christchurch Crimes and Scandals. A lot of fun. Um, Of course, uh, following the Canterbury earthquakes, uh, Jeff wrote on um, Christchurch's lost chimneys and Awful Down. And um, a work that's become more and more relevant over time, of course, has been Black November, uh, the 1918 influenza pandemic in New Zealand. Uh, So Jeff has found much of its time during this current pandemic, uh, commenting on, well, firstly, on the centenary of that event a few mm. years ago, uh, but more recently, of course, on um, uh, New Zealand's response to that pandemic. Um, so this year, as Jess talk is gonna make evident to you, uh, it's a pretty significant milestone for the Canterbury Historical Association. Now, I'm not entirely sure that the Queen is uh, writing us a letter of congratulations on our 100th birthday, but she should. Um, We are celebrating our centenary. Uh, So, in recognition of that, Jeff has very kindly um, constructed out of a history he wrote some time ago of the CHA and has updated. He's going to be telling us about the CHA's first 40 years. So, over to you, Jeff.
1: Thank you, Heather. Okay. Thousands turned away. Lovely to see you all on this very, very cold night. Anyway, uh, all the sensible people at home on Zoom. (laughs) Here we go. Well, I I rather rashly put my hand up at the AGM last year, I think it was, and said, oh, it's a centenary. Somebody should write a history. Oh, (laughs) So it was obvious. I was the obvious one to do that, I suppose, having written a a short summary some years ago. Um, But since Chris Uh, and his team have put the archives in the Canterbury Museum, Uh, they're very accessible now. Uh, They used to be in my garage, (laughs) so they're a lot more accessible to the public now. So I was able to go back and check. And this talk really is about the the first 40 years, the first two um, iterations of the Historical Association, uh, adding some of the flesh to the bare bones of the minutes. Um, Ours was not the first one uh, in New Zealand... Uh, Wellington and Dunedin were ahead of us. Uh, There was a Wellington Historical and Early Settlers Association uh, from 1890. They became a formal society in 1912, and they're still going. The Otago Early Settlers Society, a lot of people have heard of because they have a splendid new museum uh, in Dunedin, and that's going strong. Uh, The Canterbury Pilgrims and Early Settlers Association started up in 1923. In fact, there was a... I won't go into it tonight, but there was a little bit of argy-bargy about whether they should be part of the historical association or go it alone, and they decided to go it alone, finally. They're still going. Uh, Auckland didn't get a historical association or society until 1934, and I think that one became defunct in 1984, but there are now several very flourishing uh, suburban societies in Auckland now the initiative for the Canterbury Historical Association came from the Department of History and Political Science. Uh, the provisional committee was held um, held a, or summoned a public meeting on the 20th of July 1922. Uh, the leaders there were James Height, Alice Candy and Alexander Anderson. Uh, three uh, of the others were headmasters of Christchurch schools and there were six female teachers. And the aims of the association were almost directly copied from the aims of the historical association, United Kingdom, which was founded in 1906. Um, to it, to promote the study and teaching of history at all levels, uh, to hold meetings, to discuss issues of study about the study and teaching of history, to provide resources to assist teachers of history and to represent the interests of history to government and educational authorities. That always amuses me the thought that we would, we would go cap and ham and say, oh, we are history, <laughs> and tell the government what to do. Anyway, here is Dr. James Haidt, a major figure in the history of the University of Canterbury, who was president of this association from 1927 to 35. I won't go through all of the details there, but he is a really important figure in in the history of the university, that's why the the Central Library, of course, uh, holds his name as the James Height Tower. Uh, He was the first Lit D degree awarded by the University of uh, New Zealand in 1906, uh, appointed lecturer in history in uh, the same year, and became professor from 1909. Um, Then promoted up to higher administration He became the equivalent of the vice-chancellor, that's the rector, in 1928. um, Awarded the CMG in 1932 and was knighted in 1947. Um, He'd done a lot of government service. He uh, was involved with two royal commissions uh, and did quite a lot of consultancy work uh, for the government. He really was the sort of father of Canterbury College between the wars. Um, And uh, I gather from reading about him that he was a rather tedious lecturer not say dull, but his notes were superb, and students, you know, really realised they were onto something really useful there. His notes won student scholarships and impressed the London examiners because in those days all of the exam papers went to London to be marked. Um, that's why graduation w- was delayed until May, by the time the papers had come back with the marks. He was very widely read in what we would now call social history as well as uh, political and constitutional history his most of his research was in constitutional history and he was a very shy and reserved personality um, but very open very accessible to everyone um, he he prided himself on knowing all of the names of his students the university was small enough then that he could he could know them all um, and he was a violinist he collected violins um comment that uh, shelley made about him i think is very revealing Shelley said friendship is as natural to him as breathing. If he had an enemy, he wouldn't know what to do with it. (laughs) But for me, the favourite story about Haidt is that when Karl Popper arrived during the war, a refugee from the Nazis, um, Haidt personally delivered a mattress to his flat. And Popper was heard to comment, unheard of, no head of a European university would dream of such a kindness. So that was the kind of man Haidt was. The other co-founder was Alice Candy, and Alice was a committee member from 1922 all the way through to 1935 in that first phase, um, appointed a lecturer in 1920, retired from university teaching in 1948. Um, she and Haidt together published a short history of Canterbury College in 1927. And the virtually the, second, the, the last third of that volume is a detailed biographical register of all of the students since 1873. And that was her work. She did nearly all of the research for that, and then was warden of Helen Conan Hall, one of the halls of residence until 1951, described in the, uh, the official history of the university as the unofficial dean of women uh, for about 30 years, friend, big sister, and academic guide. She was undoubtedly a more lively lecturer than James Hite, uh, and gave generations of students uh, a love of history. Um, The first president of the association was a distinguished figure, one of the founding professors of uh, Canterbury College uh, way back in 1874. Um, He had initially taught classics English literature and history, Macmillan Brown did, um, and uh, made tours of the Pacific Islands uh, after his retirement. Um, He gave a talk to the association in 1922 uh, on a recent trip he'd made to Easter Island, and he had one of his own uh, pet theories about um, uh, why the population of Easter Island you know, um, declined so rapidly. He left something like 15,000 books to the university and a capital sum to build a library to house them, but it took the university until the 1980s, I think it was, before they finally built the Macmillan Brown Centre. So they had Macmillan Brown as as the uh, as were the figurehead, but the really live wire man, along with Alice Candy, who did most of the work, was Alexander Knox Anderson. Um, he was vice president for ten years, nineteen twenty three to thirty three. Uh, he'd graduated with a first class honours in history from Otago University, um, and was a senior resident master at Otago Boys High. And while he was there, he was a part-time lecturer in the Otago History Department. He was appointed rector of St. Andrew's College, one of the youngest rectors in Australasia in 1920, and stayed for 14 years. And according to Gordon Ogilvie's History of St. Andrew's College, in those years it was, quote, a happy and high-achieving school. And then he was headhunted by Scots College Sydney, Probably the top private school, boys' private school in Australasia in 1935. Um, I did a a rough count of the subject matter of the meetings across the 1920s and 1930s. Um, They had no fewer than five panels on the teaching of history at both primary and secondary levels. They were very concerned about educating the coming generations. There were eight meetings devoted to New Zealand history two on Maori history, two on exploration and colonisation, and two on politics. Um, Medieval Europe figures very prominently back then. Um, They had uh, no fewer than seven meetings devoted to medieval subjects. Um, The Icelandic sagas, the life of St Francis, the Privy Council, um, the old Cathedral of St Paul's, um, the Maud Roll, uh, which we now know as the Canterbury Roll, uh, medieval economy, medieval transport and travel. They had six meetings on modern Europe and current affairs, mostly mostly those in the 1930s, when international affairs were uh, causing concern. And they had five on Asia, subjects like China, Japan, Manchuria, and East-West relations, um, and one each on South Africa, United States, and uh, Macmillan Brown's talk on, on Easter Island. And now this is a, really just a run through of the uh, key personalities, the key supporters and and uh, uh, secretaries and speakers of the early association. James Shelley was uh, one of the most dynamic characters in the college in the 1920s. Um, he'd been Professor of Education at Southampton, he'd survived the Battle of Passchendaele and the First World War and was appointed Professor of Education at Canterbury in 1920. And along with... Um, Conliffe, uh, he established the WEA in Christchurch and was very active in extension studies taking you know, the university out to the, to the community he was also a prominent um, producer of plays an actor himself um, involved in the drama SOC and also in the Repertory Society um, after he left the university he became New Zealand's first director of broadcasting so he's a, quite an important figure in New Zealand cultural history and founded the New Zealand Listener. Um, so we have a lot much to thank Shelley for and he was belatedly knighted in 1949 after he'd after his wife died and he was in very deep depression and went back to the UK. But in his vigorous heyday in the 1920s he was a very loyal and strong supporter of the Historical Association. Alongside him, they were very great friends, uh, was John Bell Condliff. And Conliffe... Um, who'd done a master's in economics in 1915. Uh, His thesis was so good for its day, so unusually um, advanced, that it was based on um, trade statistics, uh, that the government had it printed in the yearbook um, after he'd he'd finished his thesis. Uh, Like Shelley, he served in the First World War. Um, He was wounded at Ypres. uh, And then in the same year as Shelley, he was appointed professor of economics at Canterbury College He published a short history of new zealand in 1925 which remained for about the next 40 years um, the only really accessible and available academic uh, reliable history of uh, new zealand it was updated by willis airy uh, in later years he was very involved in uh, movements for international cooperation and peace Uh, he helped to uh, found the branch of the league of nations society in christchurch And then in 1931, he went to Geneva and worked in the League of Nations Economic Secretariat. And that gave him a very big international reputation. And in 1939, just before the Second World War, he was appointed professor at the University of California in Berkeley. And there he produced major books, The Commerce of Nations was his magnum opus, and also The Welfare State in New Zealand. So a significant contributor. But he had his start, you know, rubbing shoulders with people in the Canterbury Historical Association. Another uh, speaker and supporter of the, of the association, although he wasn't resident in Christchurch, was uh, Johannes Anderson. And I've included him uh, partly because he was a much more significant historian in his day than people remember him for today. Um, uh, a poet, an ethnologist, as well as a historian. Uh, He was a major collector of Maori songs and legends and edited for many, many years the Journal of the Polynesian Society. Um, But his main official role was as the first librarian of the Alexander Turnbull Library in Wellington from 1919 to 1937. Those of us who work on Christchurch history uh, constantly go back to refer to Anderson's old Christchurch, um, uh, which is a wonderful blend of his own personal childhood reminiscences or memories of... Christchurch streets when he was a kid, um, a migrant family, but he, he grew up in Christchurch. Um, and I discovered from the newspaper accounts that he was not only a popular speaker and broadcaster, one of his party tricks, was lecturing tricks, was to whistle native bird songs. <laughs> he was apparently a very good mimic. And he finally wrote over 30 books and booklets. So he's a very prolific historian and a supporter of the association. Um, Bill Airy is another figure who needs mention. I think um, he, like the other, the first two uh, we mentioned, um, Shelley and Condliffe, uh, saw service in the First World War. Um, completed a masters in English and Latin at Canterbury in 1920. He was a bit younger than them, and then won a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford uh, in history. He came back, uh, went through Christchurch Teachers College, uh, and with Condliffe, he was very active in. The WEA and helped to found the branch the League of Nations Union, which I misquoted before. Um, he then moved he got a lectureship at Auckland uh, and stayed there for the rest of his career and there he was a colleague of people like uh, Keith Sinclair, a brilliant teacher by all accounts, and a supervisor of theses he didn 't produce very much himself in published work, but he helped other people to finish their theses. Um, the Willis Airy Library at Auckland was named in his honour, and he was the one who updated Condor's short history. Condor was overseas and away from the country, so it was Bill Airy who kept that up to date. And as I said, that was a, a standard student textbook for many years. Another major figure um, to mention, although a controversial one, is Arnold Wall. Um, even when I can remember when I was a kid in the fifties, Arnold Wall. Everybody knew Arnold Wall because he was always on the radio. <laughs> Telling us how not to how, how to pronounce English proper. <laughs> um, well, he was a professor of uh, English language, literature, and history from um, 1899. So he goes right dates right back to the to the 19th century, um, and then was appointed uh, in 1906 English language and literature, and he held that chair in English until 1931. And if you read the uh, official centennial history of the university, you'll realize that he was a very major, you know, a mover and shaker in the university in the 1920s and 30s. Um, he fully expected that he would be made rector in 1927, but they appointed Height instead. And Arnold Wall got his nose badly out of joint over this and he wrote a, a satirical poem which the newspapers were silly enough to publish, in which he said that. The horses, you know, the university council, (laughs) had chosen good, kind Dobbin as their king instead of a thoroughbred, (laughs) (laughs) regarded himself. He was an expert in Anglo-Saxon. You know, when I say an expert, he was one of the very top um, world scholars in um, Anglo-Saxon literature and poetry. Um, He was an expert on early English dialects. You know, he, he really was an outstanding linguist of his day. The New Zealand accent upset him. <laughs> and he, he wrote uh, his major book, New Zealand English, which was very critical of the, 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 the ways in which English was going to the dogs in, in, the, in the colonies. Um, and after the Second World War, he's a very prolific poet and broadcaster um, and was awarded the CBE in uh, 1956. Skip over to save a little bit of time. The next few, that's his daughter on the left, um, Hilary, who married um, one of Canterbury's outstanding products, Norman Richmond. Norman uh, came to the university to do maths initially. Um, He completed a BA in applied maths, and after war service won a Rhodes scholarship to Oxford. But he found the maths teaching at Oxford inferior to that at Canterbury. (laughs) How about that? So he switched to study history and political science. Um, he was secretary of the Historical Association uh, in 1924 uh, and then married Hillary in 1926. He lectured in Auckland and then went to Australia and he made a big rep- had a big reputation in Australia as a very outspoken pacifist and member of the Communist Party. Um, Carrington I mention, want to mention because... Um, he, he, spoke, he uh, spoke to the association, but also he had three notable sons um, who were really part of the intellectual life of Christchurch. Uh, his son Philip was a, a clergyman who later became Archbishop of Canada, um, and these two often get muddled up. Um, it was Charles, his son Charles, who wrote the biography of John Robert Godley, uh, founder of Canterbury, uh, but it was his son Hugh who went out to Tuahiwi and recorded Naitahu narratives. Um, and they, they have been, uh, Te Māori Tao has collected them and edited that, that very precious manuscript as uh, Naitahu and Immigration History. So they were all very closely involved with the Historical Association. Another notable speaker was one of the professors in the 20s, uh, Hugh Stewart, who was a very distinguished soldier in the First World War. Um, he was Professor of Classics at Canterbury before the First World War. Um, went with the first echelon, uh, wounded at Gallipoli, uh, and then was later became Lieutenant-Colonel of the Canterbury Regiment on the Western Front. And after the war was commissioned by the government to write the history of that division. Uh, and it is still, I can tell you, one of the most readable of, those of the First World War um, official histories, very good popular history. Uh, he left Canterbury in 1926, went off to be a Professor of Latin at Leeds, uh, and then was Principal at, at Nottingham came back to New Zealand several times, and sadly died at sea after one such visit. In 1927, uh, Haidt did an exchange. So James Haidt went off to Leeds, and uh, the professor of Leeds came to uh, Canterbury for one year. Uh, I can remember as, a, as an undergraduate looking at um, Grant and Temperley, Europe in the 19th century. is one of the many books we had to read. Um, and he was the other half of that. He was at the end of his career at Leeds, uh, really, and the exchange at Canterbury was a sort of preliminary to uh, his uh, post at Cairo University. And while he was at Cairo, he wrote a couple, of, uh, a couple more textbooks, one on the history of Europe, you can see there, and another one on the Huguenots. Uh, and he spoke not once, but I think three times to the Historical Association while he was in Christchurch that year. Another notable visitor from Wellington, um, who's a a big figure in New Zealand intellectual history, uh, Guy Schofield, uh, an editor, uh, journalist, newspaper editor, and archivist. Um, He was the London correspondent for Associated Press during the First World War, and uh, to fill in his spare time, he studied at the London School of Economics and completed a doctorate there. And so he (laughs) was referred to later as the Busy Doctor. Um, (laughs) He was a very prolific journalist and wrote a lot of uh, small publications. Uh, But his main contribution, several contributions to New Zealand, the sort of bedrock of New Zealand historiography, he edited Who's Who from 1908. And that's an invaluable source for those of us who dabble in in biography. Uh, He was the parliamentary librarian from 1926 to 48, And his great contribution there was that he started to collect early New Zealand newspapers where as old newspapers closed down he would swoop in and have them transported um, using his budget as parliamentary librarian to the cellar underneath the General Assembly Library. Now, I can remember as a young uh, thesis student going there and just being astonished by this enormous basement with little strings of cords with single electric bulbs, a very dim light, um, and these massive rows and rows of bound volumes of New Zealand newspapers. Um, he saved any number of little provincial or country newspapers from total extinction. Uh, so it was a major contribution there. In 1936, he was involved in trying to promote a New Zealand historical association, which didn't get off the ground. And his other major contribution, uh, a government commission for the centennial in 1940, was to edit the first Dictionary of New Zealand Biography. It came out in two volumes. Um, we found, those of us involved in the, <laughs> the second Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, that um, because he copied most of his information from newspaper obituaries, there were a few mistakes here and there, and we were able to correct them. But I was enormously impressed at the overall high standard of uh, accuracy from his work. You know, he was an enormously busy and productive man, and I think, uh, all historians of New Zealand uh, take the, have to take their hats off to what he did. Another figure closely involved, I mustn't get too behind on the time, um, Lester Webb, who was the son-in-law of um, Archbishop West Watson in Christchurch, uh, won a, did a history degree here, won a scholarship to Cambridge. He worked under Sir Ernest Barker, big leading historian of the day, uh, and then went to the International Studies School at Geneva. He came back to Christchurch and was a leader writer for the press and he spoke several times to the historical association on what we call current affairs you know the present situation as it was in europe in the 1930s he was also a good broadcaster um, and lectured here in political science sorry town site he then became a quite a notable civil servant Uh, he joined the economic stabilization committee and was the head of the New Zealand Marketing Department from 1948 to 50, and finally finished up as Professor of Political Science at the Australian University in Canberra. Uh, I mention him here because he's one of the major contributors to the first volume of the Provincial History of Canterbury, published in the 1950s. Now, that's where they met, and in fact where we met when I first was a student attending historical association meetings. Uh, The Students' Union... Uh, converted into the Students' Union in 1929, had been built as a private house, May's, Maze, uh, on the corner of um, Hereford Street and Montreal Street. Uh, the right wing in the foreground there was the Senior Common Room, where academic staff had their morning and afternoon teas. And that was where the Historical Association met right up until 1973. Um, in fact, my first talk to the Association um, was in 19... 19- well, it was in 1973, after I'd come back from uh, from overseas and, and just got my job. Um, I remember that meeting with much shame and and regret and guilt, because <laughs> I tried to bolt together two sort of related subjects, um, uh, and it went miles over time. <laughs> and there were virtually no questions at the end of it. Everyone was desperate to get to the supper. <laughs> I'd gone over time. I don't want to do that tonight. Better not, because there's no supper. <laughs> anyway, the secretary of the association for quite a few years in the 30s, in from nineteen twenty-seven to thirty-one. I think the longest-serving secretary of this of the early phase was the Reverend Gordon Mackenzie, who seems to have been another live wire, uh, very much like Anderson. Uh, he had been educated at Rangiora High School, came through um, did a BA at Canterbury nineteen sixteen and was ordained after school teaching he was ordained in 1931, and then was headmaster of Cathedral Grammar here in Christchurch uh, in 1935. And he wrote uh, a history of the Christchurch Cathedral, um, which my friend Ned Bowen has been rereading as he writes the, up- the updated new history of the cathedral. Uh, he moved off to Wellington in 1937 and became chaplain to the Royal New Zealand Navy. Um, Haidt gave uh, several talks to the association, but probably the most significant was the one he gave at the AGM in 1931, which was on uh, the value of studying history, um, and it's, uh, it's difficult to sort of summarise it in two minutes flat, um, but you know, he, he challenged some of the popular myths about history, or history just repeats itself, and he said, well, it may appear to be cyclical, but each event has its own unique set of circumstances, And so you have to be very, very careful. Um, You you need to be aware of the differences when you're comparing events across the past. He also made the very valid point, I think, which is very commonly held today, that all history is contemporary history and that each generation asks its own questions of the past and will reinterpret the past in the light of its own circumstances. Um, He strongly emphasised the basic value of history, that you need to understand the past in order to make sense of the present. Um, and all the valuable, um, the things we tell our students that studying history is very useful skills for the workforce, you know, sound judgment. Um, Height said it curbs prejudice, uh, makes you more broad-minded and tolerant, moulds character. I'm not quite sure if history moulded my character, but anyway. And trains the imagination, um, putting yourself into other people's shoes, um, approach to the past. And he also pointed out that New Zealand was a good subject for doing history because it's a relatively short history and it's done an awful lot in a short time. Um, it used to be called you know, the, the, the Social Laboratory of the World from the 1890s. But he pointed out there was a great scope for the analysis of historical processes uh, from New Zealand history. This is my great discovery. I had no idea about this man until I started work doing this work. Dr Isamu Kawase. Uh, who spoke to the Historical Association in 1934. He was then a student out at Lincoln College doing agriculture. Um, He was the first Japanese to graduate from a New Zealand university, and he was the first Japanese person to be awarded a Queen's Service Order. Um, He was actually a grassland scientist, and he um, lectured at a number of Japanese universities, finished up at Osaka. and was a co-founder of the Japan-New Zealand Friendship Society, which still exists. What I didn't know at all about him was that he was a composer. And if you look him up on the web, you'll find that he came to Christchurch as a very elderly man in 1999 to hear the first performance of his symphony, Dear New Zealand, and sadly suffered a heart attack and died in his hotel room. Um, A rather sad ending there. But there's a Japanese student who... Um, made quite a splash. His, his lecture was very well attended um, because, of course, great concern over the Japanese occupation of Manchuria in the early 1930s. Alexander Anderson, who'd really, I think, been the, the live wire in, this, in the association through the 1920s and 30s, um, finally departed in 1934 for his new post at um, in, in Sydney. Uh, but for 12 years he'd been... Uh, a Vice President and a live wire. Height was so often away in Wellington on government business that uh, Anderson chaired a lot of the meetings through the 1930s. Membership declined for obvious reasons in the 1930s. People had much better things to spend their guineas on, like food <laughs> in the 1930s. Um, but the audiences were very large. They were getting audiences, you know, 100, 150 coming to evening uh, lectures especially when they were about current affairs, about Japan, Germany and Italy. Um, The committee then, in its wisdom, decided to concentrate on medieval history in 1935, and that seems to have been the death knell. (laughs) It folded up. The minutes cease abruptly. There's no explanation, they just stop in 1935. Um, And I have really no idea, although one would suspect that, um, you know, reduced membership, uh, financial problems... Uh, and much more uh, pressing issues on the international scene. So that was the first phase of the Historical Association, and that should be halfway through, but it's, I've gone long, long over my allotted time. So I might have to speed up a bit in this, bit. the second Historical Association, brackets, Canterbury, 1953. Um, there was an advertisement in the press on the 15th of August, 1953, inviting all persons interested in history to attend a meeting on the 20th of August, signed N.C. Phillips, who was then of course the professor of history. Uh, they elected Sir James Haight patron, he was then elderly and then retired. Neville Phillips was president, Harry Hornsby vice-president, John Owen who went on to a very distinguished academic career as secretary, uh, and one of the other people attending was of course Alice Candy, who had been such a loyal supporter through there. And this is the portrait of her by Bill Sutton, Uh, which used to hang on level three of the history department here at Ireland. Neville Phillips, I could say an awful lot about Neville, but I'll zip through these ones fairly quickly. Um, uh, He was president in 1953, 54, and again in 57. Um, He'd uh, been a student in the 1930s, first class MA in 1937, won a scholarship to Oxford, but he'd barely started his research when the war broke out And he he joined the Royal Artillery, joined the British Army rather than New Zealand, and rose to the rank of major and came back to Christchurch after the war. uh, The college snapped him up and he was appointed, he lectured, and then he was appointed Professor of History and Political Science in 1948 and was Professor of History um, from 1962 to 66 after Political Science had been set off separately. And Phillips was renowned for his very high academic standards, The standards he'd found at Oxford, Um, uh, standards in history appear to have been much better in history at Oxford than they were in mathematics anyway. Um, He was then appointed vice-chancellor in 1966, and that was a very busy decade because that was the big move from the town site out here to Ireland. Um, And he also organised and presided at the 1973 university centennial and was rewarded, of course, uh, with a CMG and retired to live in Kent um, after 1973. Um, Vice President was Harry Hornsby, who was the headmaster of um, Christ's College. And according to Don Hamilton's um, history, um, he'd been a major in a Gurkha regiment and spoke fluent um, uh, Gurkhi's. And one of his favourite words of commendation was, Shabash, well done, well done, good on you, lad. (laughs) You know, He'd done classics and history at Brasenose College, Oxford, uh, and as headmaster of Christ's College for a little over a decade. Uh, Don Hamilton's book says he was like a breath of fresh air, a really remarkable leader. The boys very responded to him, and he revitalised what was then a rather old-fashioned school. Before he went on to St Paul's in Auckland and a stint in Tonga. Secretary in 1955 was a very familiar name uh, in New Zealand historiography: uh, Bill Oliver. Um, He'd uh, done an MA at, here at Victoria, uh, got a scholarship to Oxford, did his PhD there in 1953, and then got a lectureship here at Canterbury in 1955. Um, he then moved to Victoria, um, where he lectured there um, from 1960 to 64. But it was while he was here in Christchurch that he wrote um, The Story of New Zealand, uh, the textbook which is often put alongside Bill um, uh, Keith Sinclair's Penguin History um, and Bill told me once that he, he, he wrote that book in one summer sitting in the library on the town site because around him were all the books that had ever been printed on New Zealand history <laughs> that was how small the historiography was in those days uh, Bill went on of course to a, a stellar career Professor of History at Massey uh, co-edited the Oxford History of New Zealand uh, and was the first editor of the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography Um, and then was closely involved with Waitangi Tribunal claims. And alongside all of that, of course, he was a very notable New Zealand poet. Jim Gardner is the other major pillar of the revived, the second edition Canterbury Historical Association, secretary in 1958, uh, twice president, 1959, 1976. Um, He came a little bit after uh, Neville Phillips, but he also was a first-class graduate in history. Um, saw service during the war in the medical corps, he was an army nurse, um, served in North Africa and Italy um, and uh, not long before he died, Jim confided to me that he had seen so many horrible things as a, as a military uh, medic, um, that for many years afterwards he couldn't even bear to think about these things, he had nightmares. Um, well he was appointed to uh, the department, history department in 1948 and retired as reader in 1976. And is well known as um, a pioneer of um, scholarly local history in New Zealand. His history of the Amuri was a model of its kind. Uh, with David McIntyre, edited speeches and documents in New Zealand history, contributed to the history of Canterbury, uh, the Oxford History of New Zealand, and the first volume of the dictionary, um, and then in retirement, produced the pastoral Kingdom divided, and was awarded the ONZM in 2007. John Saunders was my um, supervisor for my master's thesis. He was secretary in 1957 and president in 1960, 61. um, Originally from Exeter, had served in India in the Intelligence Corps uh, and lectured at Canterbury from 1949 to 72. He taught a wide range of courses, uh, including modern Europe and the Russian Revolution. But the Crusades was his special topic. His little book, Aspects of the Crusades, made quite a hit because it it put into English the results of a wide range of reading in uh, mostly French journals. And then his other two major books, The History of Medieval Islam and History of the Mongol Conquest, uh, went through quite a number of paperback editions. They were very successful as, as student textbooks. And it's mainly because John was the son of a professional actor, and his lectures were just superb performances. He knew how to communicate to students um, and to give them the, the love of, of the path, love of history that he had. I'll skip over Carl Straubel very quickly and also Gerald Hensley. Come back to Jim Gardner. Jim organised a junior historical association in 1957 as a junior branch of the, of the main association. Um, and initially it was uh, to give... Um, kids before they sat their matric exams, and then later their bursary exams, you know, sort of revision lectures before examination time. But Jim, um, being a country lad from North Canterbury, um, was keen to get students out into the country, and he organised a popular series of field trips in the 1950s, uh, mostly to North Canterbury, his stamping ground, uh, Kaiapoi, Pa, uh, Leithfield, Mount Janet Station, and Glenmark and Stonyhurst. And then 1958, Banks Peninsula, and in 1960 down to Butler's Cottage in Mesopotamia. And his great mate on those expeditions was George Macdonald, um, another one who'd seen service in World War One, uh, and was a sheep farmer for most of his years. But re- retired in 1945, very glad to get rid of sheep, he said. Um, and he then took on voluntary work at Canterbury Museum. Now. George MacDonald's name is another one, well known to all of us who work in Canterbury Christchurch local history. Um, He was initially called on to identify, try to. The museum had a lot of unidentified photographs, and just from his knowledge of sheep stations up and down the landscape, he was able to identify a lot of them, and then started jotting down notes about the run holders and the early settlers. And from 1950 to 64, He beavered away in the museum, mostly on newspaper sources, on the Dictionary of Canterbury Biographies. Now, this this is a handwritten biography, 12,000 entries handwritten on index cards. And they're just a marvellous resource because he was of the generation who had heard all sorts of stories about people in Christchurch in the 19th century. And so it's, it's really very useful. He also wrote Histories of the Christchurch Club and the Canterbury Frozen Meat Company. Uh, I did want to mention Mrs. Pocock briefly, um, because Gordon Ogilvy told me quite a lot about her. She was the wife of the professor of classics at Canterbury in the 30s and 40s and the mother of the famous John Pocock. She had a London B.A. in history and she taught at St Andrew's College. Uh, for many years she was the only woman on the staff there, I think, from 1941 to 67 as head of history. And Gordon Ogilvy once told me that, you know, he was. He was quite stunned as a young boy in the 50s to be taught by Antoinette. And she said that she had this wonderful husky voice, this seductive French accent, and she would perch on the end of a desk puffing away on a cigarette, a long ivory cigarette holder. And one of the stories he heard about her was that she and her husband, the professor of classics, uh, didn't like each other's cooking, so they cooked for themselves. And the kitchen was equipped with two separate stoves so they wouldn't get in each other's way. <laughs> quite quite an eccentric woman. He, Gordon said she just taught history by telling anecdotes and stories about people. And he said that, that was much more colorful than the boring lists of dates that other teachers gave him. Um, one of the notable secretaries of the 1950s, John Broomfield, who is still with us. He lives in Nelson now. Um, first class uh, degree at Canterbury. Um, then went on a scholarship to the Australian National University and did a PhD on Indian history and was Professor of Asian History at Michigan uh, for about 20 years and then moved over to San Francisco. Uh, He got very interested in other forms of knowledge and ways of knowing and is actually a practising shaman. Uh, The death of Sir James Hite in 1958 ended the link with the old original historical association of the 1920s, but... Membership had crept up. It was over 100 by then. Um, some of the notable committee members that you pick out from the minutes in those days, Sarah Penny, Sadie to her friends, Shona Mann, Agnes Cooper, all history teachers at girls' schools. Um, people like Peter Mailing, Dr David Macmillan. I should have mentioned that uh, the MacDonald Dictionary of um, Canterbury Biographies uh, really should be the Macmillan, <laughs> uh, uh, MacDonald um, dictionary, because he got most of his um, basic biographical information from David Macmillan's files. Um, and I once saw, in, after he died, Dr Macmillan's study, which was just lined all around three walls, uh, all these uh, massed folders of notes on, on the early Canterbury pioneers. Harry Scott is another very notable supporter of the society. Uh, Gordon Slatter, who was a teacher at Boys High and a notable novelist. Um, and various other people. I was really struck with the fact that John Matson, the future chancellor of this university, gave a talk on African nationalism in the 50s, and made not a single mention of Marxism, (laughs) Uh, which of course was a major theme of the rest. Now, finally, to wrap up this this story, Keith Sinclair, professor at Auckland, um, one of the first PhDs out of Auckland University, um, founded the New Zealand Journal of History and edited it for uh, the first 20 years often referred to as the sort of the father of modern New Zealand history, a uh, very distinctive personality, uh, prolific writer, very assertive, very competitive, a very left-wing, and he was a Labour candidate uh, in the 1970s. Uh, his big book, The Origins of the Maori Wars, established his reputation, but his Penguin History of New Zealand in 1957 became the standard work and influenced generations of students. He came down to give a talk to the Historical Association in June 1958, and he shocked the audience by rather bluntly suggesting that most printed New Zealand history was unreliable or simply bosh. And he declared as a myth the idea that New Zealand was peopled by the best of British migrants. He said, you know, the, the Wakefield schemes were a tiny fraction compared with the great waves of the Gold Rush era and the 1870s immigration. He pointed out that the Canterbury settlers in the 1850s imported three gallons of spirits per person per year (laughs) and that early Christchurch had brothels and gambling dens. Um, And in contradiction of of the statement that Wakefield transplanted a cross-section of British society, he said the migrants came to escape the British class system. They didn't want to be part of it. And he thought that the New Zealand frontier was much more like that of Australia or the western uh, frontier of the United States than Britain or home. And he condemned the slavish following of British models and pointed out that New Zealand's future really lay like as a Pacific country. Well, this caused quite a stir, because, of course, this seemed to contradict the accepted myth about the first four ships in Canterbury and the idea that Canterbury was a socially superior settlement. It had so many Oxford graduates you know, and, and uh, younger sons of the aristocracy and so forth. Now, according to Ned Bowen, um, I informed, um, he was sitting next to uh, Len Hewland, a member of the Canterbury Pilgrims and early settlers, who was fuming at the end of this talk. And Sinclair had you know, rubbished his ancestors. <laughs> and he said, I can't go and speak to that man. I wouldn't control my right fist from hitting him in the face. <laughs> so, uh, there were no protest letters to the press, unusually. They all kept a dignified silence. But in July, a review of McClintock's Crown Colony Government referred to this talk and pointed out that a number of the myths that Sinclair criticised had already been debunked some years before. Uh, But it's interesting that Sinclair then modified his Penguin history to take note of McClintock's views. Uh, Jim Gardner gave a presidential address on Massey in March 1960. Sadly, well, he particularly refuted Sinclair's damning pen portrait in his Penguin History of Massey as hopelessly stereotyped, lacking one original idea, sympathetic as a grindstone and so on. Uh, Jim pointed out gently, this was the Red Feds view, this was the, the, the radical, you know, the, the, the Marxist inspired view of Massey, and that there were a lot of other good things that could be said about Massey, but sadly Jim never got to finish the book um, about Massey. Others have done that since. 1960, a big landmark for the association was the appearance of Historical News, um, as a journal to serve history teachers. Uh, Neville Phillips, as you can see there, wrote the first uh, on the first issue on the relevance of history. Um, John Pocock wrote on the unification of Italy, and Jim Gardner wrote about recent books on New Zealand history. Um, As you can see there from the masthead, uh, John Pocock, uh, lecturer in political science, senior lecturer in political science was, uh, along with a school teacher one of the, the first editors. Um, and this was a winner from the start. It was only 12 pages, uh, but it had articles by lecturers, by academics, surveying new research and interpretations. It contained book reviews, uh, recent theses on New Zealand history, recommended books for schools. Um, 1961, there was a report of a seminar uh, on class in the historian, featuring John Pocock, Sam Edson, Jim Gardner, and Neville Phillips. And it even printed the reading lists for uh, history courses at the universities. So this was John Pocock's first very active involvement with the Historical Association. Um, Son of the Professor of Classics at Canterbury, uh, first class honours in history in 1946, scholarship to Cambridge. He lectured first of all at Otago and there wrote his first book, The Ancient Constitution and the Feudal Law, which was a big hit in Britain. It was acclaimed as a major new work. It really revolutionised that field. And in 1959, he came back to Canterbury as Senior Lecturer in Political Science and was appointed professor in 1962. He then moved off to the States, uh, first of all to Missouri, and then um, the Johns Hopkins um, University in Baltimore. And now, uh, still alive in his 90s, uh, regarded as one of the world's leading historians of political thought. Uh, A number of very big books like the Machiavellian Moment, and over 200 articles and reviews. Um, The Presidential Address by John Saunders in 1961 uh, was really a preview of his little book, Aspects of the Crusades. Uh, Gives you a little summary there, but I must finish up and say, well, that's that's the first 40 years. For another time, perhaps we should consider the historical association from 1962 to 82 um, and then into the uh, turn of the century and then into the digital era, Um, and there are others who are much better qualified to talk about that than myself. So I hope you've enjoyed that quick canter through some of the leading characters and personalities associated with this association uh, in its first 40 years. And there, um, from, gosh, I've forgotten the date of this, was it 2002? There was an Edwardian carnival in Hagley Park, and you've got Gene Schaaf on the right there, um, and Enid Ellis on the left there. And we had a presence there, and we sold quite a number of books and magazines and signed up, I think, two new members. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for your attention.